You're listening to an OTB AM podcast. You can watch the show or listen live every weekday morning from 7.45 AM. Subscribe to the OTB AM podcast stream for more stuff just like this. And you're very welcome along to Tuesday Morning's OTB AM. We're here with you all the way until half past nine this morning. As ever, if you want to get in touch with us, you can leave us a comment on any of the streams or however you're listening to this. You can uh, always tweet us with the hashtag OTB AM. Owen, how are you? Very well. How are you? Yeah, I'm pretty good. Uh, it's a big day for Irish golf. Uh, Paul Carrington's going to be named the Ryder Cup captain. A bit of a poison chalice when you get the away games. Yeah, obviously, like, nobody ever wins away matches. No. It's a brave move, but it's also... Do you, do you get some sort of pride from this? That we're going to have three Irish captains in the last four... Is it something that we should be proud of? I mean, uh, you know, I'm delighted for Park Harrington. Yeah. Like, genuinely delighted for Park Harrington. Darren Clark, you know, that was, that was all about Darren. You are on the Dave McIntyre side on that Actually, one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, look, and McGinley obviously made a, a brilliant success out of it. So, um, I think like, this is the type of thing that will very much appeal to Harrington. Yeah, well, like, I, I was, I was going to go full. It's a great day for Irish sport. I, I don't think it's quite that. If Project Harrington ends up winning in Whistling Straits, then it's like, that's pretty cool. And that, that is a huge challenge that he has. And he knows exactly what the challenge is. You do wonder if the list of candidates is shorter when it comes to the away trips. You suspect that anybody would want to take the Ryder Cup captaincy at any possible point. But if anybody had a choice... They want us to be in Europe. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. And I would say that um, there was a sense that if he doesn't take it now, he might not get it in four years. Because, you know, you've got to take it when your time comes because there's always a bunch of other people coming through, like Sergio Garcia might be ready by the time it rolls around again. But at the same time, you know, I think Park Harrington probably has a case to go, yeah, no, I'm going to take one of the home ones. So I'd say he could have waited. And I'd say he is being pretty brave. And I'd say that's probably in keeping with his character. If Patrick Harrington, so like obviously the captaincy, you can compare it to a managerial role in the Premier League. If he is one Premier League manager, who is he? I dare say he's closer to the Ole Gunnar Solskjaer school of thought than he would be to the prescriptive sort of Pep Guardiola school Pep of Guardiola. thought. He's Pep Guardiola. He's, he's interrupting players in the middle of their backswing going, now hang on a second, why are you doing that? Just, I'm, going to, I'm just going to show you how, how it's done and then you're going to do it the way I just showed you. Is he? Well, I, guess, I guess his analysis in Sky Sports would suggest that, all right, he, he was quite cutting and quite incisive when he needed to be and there is that layer beneath him. I'm kind of thinking on more of a surface level you think of the, the benevolent man who's like, I'm going to make my team happy and they're going to play good golf because they're happy. Uh, maybe more Mourinho and like everybody's going to be on a constant state of heightened alert and we're at war perpetually. Kind of like Tom Watson in whatever that was, six years ago at this but point? I just, I think his character was like, um, you know, I'm the best golf in the world, I'm going to rip my swing apart and change it again. Yeah. Like, like that is, there's definitely an element of that in terms of being very, very self-critical. But when it comes to the Ryder Cup... How much can you actually teach a guy? Well, I mean, that's the whole thing. You can't. You can't, Obviously. exactly. It's all about yeah, having so, a happy camp. I mean, you know, there's, there's literally nothing you can do beyond making sure the fish are blue and yellow. Well, precisely. And the ability of uh, Thomas Bjorn to do that this year. I'm not even sure how responsible he was. Like, how lucky was he that he managed to stumble upon Mollywood? Maybe it was the biggest stroke of captaincy genius we've ever seen, and it was all down to Thomas Bjorn. But I dare say that on day one, when he saw the two guys playing well together, he was like, well, this has worked out well. I'm not, uh, I'm not splitting the, this duo up at all. And, you know, you've got to give credit to a captain for realising what's going well and sticking to it. I think that's it. Uh, I think you could overcomplicate the role a tiny bit. But then again, you look at some of the people that they brought in in terms of other experts from other areas of the field to kind of come in and talk to the, to the players. Like, I think McGinley did that during his captaincy, uh, which you could say is an overcomplication, but it worked. 
Well, if they win, everything works, right? Well, that's the thing. There, there is a lot of revisionism when it comes to Ryder Cup captaincies. Yeah, totally. Um, the other big story that... Uh, well, it's not really a big story, but it's just this kind of um, constant simmering tension in the background between the uh, Rugby Football Union, the English clubs, and it's now spilled over. So the Civil War was like a uh, 316-page dossier was released yesterday, leaked yesterday about a breakaway and the potential for the English clubs to break away from the RFU if relegation continues. And today the stories are all about, uh, oh, maybe we'll downsize the European Cup. It's like, leak, 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 leak. And uh, the headline is about um, tournament could downsize to protect player welfare, which is clearly bollocks. It's downsizing because the English clubs don't want to play in Europe and they want to put all their money in the, uh, whatever the premiership is called, whatever. Gallagher Premiership. Yeah. The Guinness... Littlewoods Premiership, whatever. Um, and uh, the, pretending that this is under the guise of player welfare is one of the biggest, stupidest lies that uh, we're trying to be sold here. Like, this is one of the best tournaments that rugby has going for it. It's really good. The players clearly like it. The clubs clearly, actually, when they get involved, like it. The quality of rugby is better than anything we see week to week in any of the competitions. Pro 14, Top 14, or the Littlewoods Gallagher's Premiership. Sorry. I think it's just Gallagher. I think Gallagher have the sole exclusivity on that one. Uh, I think this is nonsense, but it's going to happen because what the Brits want, they get so far. So far, the rest of Europe has bowed down in front of them and said, OK, yeah, Grant, you can cut the tournament, you can cut the tournament, you can play it in these dates, we can make sure that it's like before the end of your season. No, it's time to say, OK, Grant, don't be part of this. We'll have it with the French and see what happens. Well, that's, uh, that, that would kill a huge element of it, though, right? There's no way the Champions Cup maintains any of its sort of current prestige without the English clubs in it. They'll be back. Do you think so? How long? They'll be back. I don't know. But Is this not back. a bubble that's growing in, and it's not going to stop for five, ten years at this point at least, given the idea of a breakaway, given how quickly this has happened as well? Because None of them make any money. None of All the premiership clubs. All is money. So, like... They're, they're like, if you're saying that these are titans of business who've made loads of money and know exactly how the sport should be governed into the future, that's nonsense. Show me, show me the track record of them making money. Mm. Show me where they've actually uh, built a successful rugby team that has been self-sufficient, as opposed to what clearly happened over there was that loads of teams broke the salary cap for years, and then they started to uh, raise the salary cap so you wouldn't have to break it anymore, and then the club started losing money. It's like, it's really simple economics. And they haven't built a sustainable sport. They're flogging their players. They've completely ruined the English national team, which is one of the main drivers of growth in terms of uh, the sport itself because it doesn't have a grassroots that's strong enough to just keep pumping numbers out. And they're not dealing with any of the issues that they have. Instead, they're shouting on about uh, cutting the um, number of games that they'll play against their European teams when actually those games should be getting a higher profile and more money. Anyway, my... Uh they're talking about reducing it to potentially three-team pools. Well, they, they talk about the idea of having four pool games, so I presume that that would be the plan. But like you talk about the lack of profit from a com- when it comes to Premier League or Premiership rugby teams. Is there not talk of a huge increase in revenue, in revenue that's going to come into the franchises? Like, obviously, the thing is, when it comes to basic economics, if you get more money in, you're probably going to end up pumping more money out. The salary cap will go up and you'll still be in just as dire a state as you currently are financially. So that probably won't solve things. But they're certainly looking at the way the trend is going in terms of the money coming in and that's certainly on the rise. I mean, 
they so they just took a lot of money from this VC firm that um, made billions out of Formula One. But like Formula One and English rugby are slightly different scales. Formula One is this massive global enterprise with a hundred years of um, advertising money pumping into it and a bunch of different people who want to spend money on it. Rugby in England is definitely growing, but hasn't yet reached a point where you still don't have the, the players. Uh, um, three weeks ago, there was one of their best players talking about how it's still a, a class of sport in England. And um, the attendances aren't high enough for the teams to sustain themselves. The television audiences aren't high enough yet for the TV companies to continue putting in like the super money which will transform it. At some point, possibly, there will be a league that gets enough TV money to be profitable. But that's, we're not there at the moment. Well, my question is, why is there an organisation who've been involved with Formula One and know how sports entertainment works, why are they pumping money into the Premiership instead of looking at the alternative? Now, I'm not sure what sort of financial state uh, the, the crowd that run the Champions Cup are in. But are they in a position to take money off whoever's running Formula One or other big sports entertainment behemoths? I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot there in terms of the nitty gritty of this, in terms of who's actually financing this. But I would certainly be a little bit cautious of the idea that the Premiership is getting this money. It is attractive to somebody. So the Premiership is owned. Um, there's a, a number of the founding clubs of the Premiership own a share in the Premiership, and they all have an equal share. It's like for some reason I think it's 13. I'm not sure. We could, I can check that and um, we can come back to it. But uh, so that. That entity is owned by those shareholders. The European Champions Cup is a separate thing which is owned by the um, individual uh, countries, unions. So you can't sell this thing because you don't have clubs to partake in it if you don't have clubs Mm. to participate in it. It's a a more sponsored-based thing. Uh, Yeah. Like, what are you selling if you sell the European Cup? Yeah. What, what, what is the shareholding in? Whereas the actual, the nuts and bolts of the league is what the clubs own. And so that was the great error that the RFU made, was not owning that league and insisting that, or, or taking in part ownership of all the clubs somewhere along the way and saying, OK, we'll have 50% of the clubs, uh, of each club, and we'll pay the wages of all your players, and you guys go about doing all the rest of the stuff. It does yeah. seem it's too late to get back to that point now. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. Like, maybe that just league goes bust. Like, um, uh, the championship in England had a massive TV deal with uh, ITV Sport, whatever that TV channel was called, around 2000, 2002, and it went tits up. And um, it was a little bit later, 2004. And when that went tits up, the, the whole thing crashed. And somebody had to come in and kind of go, OK, well, this is how this is going to be organised from now on. And that's how the, um, the organisation that is the championship and the league started to organise themselves. So, I mean, maybe we just have to go through this cycle of uh, boom and bust, but the way it's being run at the moment and the way they're trying to sell us, lie to us about, oh, we need to have a smaller, shorter competition because the players are playing too many games. Well, you know, you have massive squads. You could limit the number of minutes that your players play if you wanted to, but instead you're going to actually ruin this competition, which is really good. And the thing is, they're talking about the solution being a reduction of, like, two games. Like, what's the real benefit there? It's not like a massive overhaul where you're going to lose ten games a season. It's still two games you're losing if you're going to go down to, to three-team pools, reduce the, the, the whatever it's going to go down from, to, like, 16 teams or whatever it may be. That, for me, isn't a, a welfare overhaul that's going to get, get you in, get the sport into a required place where it needs to be. Maybe there's no quarterfinals if you play 16. 
Um, All right, so one less game, four less games. Yeah, three see, less games. I mean, the English clubs aren't uh, obviously making the quarterfinals anyway. Well, that's moment, it. So. The, the player welfare is not a problem for English teams in the, in the Champions Cup at the moment. Andrew Irving says, if the English clubs leave, I'm sure you could tempt the top teams in South Africa to form a new competition with the Pro 14, Top 14, and South Africa. I mean, you take them out if they, yeah. They, like, it definitely looks like the top South African teams are being. Um, Coated up to by the Pro 14, and that would transform the quality of the Pro 14 if you got the good South African teams to play here. Yeah, totally. I mean, perhaps the current two being in there showed that it is logistically possible to do so, and we know that the South African teams in Super Rugby aren't exactly satisfied with their situation either. They're there for the taking if you get to that situation. It would definitely be a good situation if the, if the English were out and we had the big South African teams on our side, if we can call it our side. That gives us a pretty good hand in the game of chicken that this will ultimately become. Yeah, well, suddenly that becomes a market that's worth watching and those games are good and the intensity goes up and everybody's happy. Darren Dohany, how are you? Says, uh, completely agree in the English clubs. How can the RFU stand up against the money of the clubs in the Premiership? Charles Wright, the clubs will be back as soon as their debt becomes unsustainable. Hashtag OTBAM. Um, yeah, as Emma says, uh, what the English clubs are saying is uh, they want to leave Europe. Um, but, you know, they want to retain all the rights that... Uh, being part of the um, European Rugby Championships gives them. They want to be part of the Ironing Cup. They want to have their beer and drink it, basically. Yeah, uh, Gallagher Premiership means Gallagher Premiership. Gallagher, Harrington's, Boddington's, Rumbelow's Cup. Betty Crocker. Uh, top of the show, we've done uh, English Rugby Club as the 10 most valuable footballers. We're going to get to that. Will we do that right now? We may as well. Yeah, okay, so uh, we're bringing that in the papers. Bernard Jackman's going to join us around about 10 past 8 this morning. He's going to talk to us about the depth chart in the front row. We're going to run through the depth chart of every position in the Irish rugby team between now and the start of the Six Nations. It's obviously a bit of a movable feast, given that Robbie Henshaw has suddenly catapulted himself back into contention and Chris Farrell looks like he's out for the Six Nations with we'll, uh, a confirmation <coughs> of the severity of his knee injury in the last minute of the game at the weekend against Connacht. We're bringing our sports news with Darren around about 8.35 this morning. We're going to talk Spanish football. The situation at Real Madrid is so bad that they're considering... Putting Jose Mourinho straight back in charge. We we'll, call this. We'll deal with that uh, a little bit later on. We did. Straight away. We, we called this when Jose was still in the Manchester United job. We actually did a piece with Graham. I know, but I thought that it was like a ha-ha-ha, this is never going to happen no, piece. of course. It, 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 Jose Mourinho is a strange man, and Florentino Perez is a strange man. They are kindred when spirits. When they met, it was Moida. It certainly was. Um... So I, strange things can happen when you put two strange men into the footballing world together. Yeah. All right, let's bring you through the... Uh, are we going to do the top ten most successful footballers? Uh, we're going to leave that for a oh, while. No, I see Tommy going, no. He's sl- slitting our throats there for uh, even suggesting it. So we're going to start with the Irish Times sports section this morning, and that is uh, Lancaster fired up for another memorable clash of champions. Toulouse, top of the table at the moment in um, France, unbeaten since the uh, game against Leinster. They're pretty good. It's a sellout. It's a one o'clock kickoff on Saturday, and it's live on Off the Ball and News Talk on Saturday. Yeah, it's one that you get excited for. It's it's almost as if beating Leinster has just given them the sort of confidence that they were needed to realise that yeah, we are one of the European superpowers still. It's a huge game from a Leinster perspective. It is. Like I think in their last couple of games, you're still kind of waiting for this moment where Leinster sort of wake up and have this massive backlash where you're like, okay, Leinster are back. At what point do we start referring to Leinster as being back? Because I think they'll admit themselves that the first half of the season perhaps hasn't gone as well as some people might have expected. Maybe privately they were saying to themselves, there's no way we can back up the unbelievable form at the end of last season immediately, particularly after a fairly tough summer in terms of all the Irish internationals and a tough autumn as well. 
So I expect there to be a backlash again at some point from the Leinster team. And like we better, are talking about a backlash, right? we are talking about a, a backlash coming off the back of them destroying Ulster at the weekend. So I, I'm not quite sure if, if I'm being totally fair to them at this point. But I expect a big win at some point the, at the end of the Champions Cup pool stage. Yeah, well, I mean, it was uh, Ulster B team. There's uh, Dottie Weir on the um, Irish Times. He's pictured in all of the newspapers today uh, in his um, Dottie suit. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Uh, so obviously so you met him yesterday? Met him yesterday. We're going to play the interview out in full tomorrow. Uh, obviously, this is ahead of the Ireland versus England Legends rugby match, which takes place every year. And the My Name's Dottie Foundation a uh, fantastic cause promoting neuron disease research uh, that's come on board this year and uh, it's just it, like absolutely anybody who can get behind this cause uh, I'm sure m- many people will realise what a fantastic cause it is yeah what's the sort of suit uh, the suit so it's uh, it's the Dolly suit he called us when I met him yesterday and uh, I guess the fact that it's tartan suggests uh, you know immediately where he's from even though you know you even if you've no idea who Dolly Weir is and uh it's like it is what it is. It's he's the the sharpest dressed man at the media event yesterday. Did you try it on? I did not try on the suit. It, it probably would have gone down to my ankles. To be he's, fair, he's a he's big man still. Uh, he is very big man. They, I, I think that would uh, have been a good picture, actually. Well, yeah, it's that would have been kind of embarrassing, really. I mean, think about your Instagram. You just got to think about the Instagram likes. P- putting me bes- putting me beside professional or former professional rugby players is always a, a comedic event. Me needing to actually wear their <laughs> garments is not needed to actually make it funny. Okay, so Duddy Weir was in Dublin yesterday ahead of the Ireland England Legends match on the RDS on the first of February. The proceeds from that game will be split among the My Name's Dottie Foundation and a number of other charities. So he did speak to us about his life since he was diagnosed with motor neuron disease. Here's part of that chat. We'll bring the rest of it on tomorrow's show. And, and that's what I've taken on board. I see a chiropractor once a week and he says if you don't use it, you lose it. So with the muscles in your hands, try and do as much as you can. So tying shoelaces, for example, is a big thing for me. But then I keep doing it, it might take me five minutes, but I do it and boom, that's, that's our success. Mm. Drinking a pint, I can't really do it with one hand, so I've got to do it with two hands now. So we've got to adapt and that's the kind of thing in the spirit you've got to have. But the spirit really is is to try and make a difference and try and, I just think it's outrageous in today's environment that there's not even one new drug in 25 years has hit the table to give people with MND a chance. And with a chance you need options and there is no options. So with that, we want to try and change that. Yeah, so that full interview will uh, play out for you tomorrow. The Ireland England Legends match in the RDS on the 1st of February supports a number of great causes and you can uh, get tickets for it now. Uh, so next to the Irish Independent here this morning. Uh, Byrne ready to step up if injury rules section out. That's the big news from yesterday. Robbie Henshaw is back and potentially ready for a matchday squad this weekend. But that uh, Johnny Sexton and Devon Toner are 50-50. It's early in the week for them to be saying 50-50. So that kind of suggests it's more likely 30-70. You'd think so. Certainly when it comes to 50-50 in the Ireland camp, yeah. it always goes to 30-70 because Joe Schmidt likes to have them involved for the entire week. Is that the same with Leinster? They're, they're talking about a cut-off point needing to train today to be named for the game on Saturday, so we'll see. Um, Stuart Lancaster was uh, definitely picking up Ross Byrne anyway. He's benefited from sitting underneath Johnny for three years and I can't give him enough credit. He's a leader, his kicking game's proficient, he's ready. That's that one. Um, good, interesting story from Dan McDonald about Matt Doherty poised to sign a new deal and also poised to join the um, Mendez camp so at the moment Matt Doherty's dad looks after him he doesn't have an agent and they seem to have negotiated a pretty good deal at Wolves last season where he is apparently on 20 grand a week until 2021 but uh, super agent George Mendez who basically is the most important person at the club 
not the manager, not the owner. He's the guy. He's the man. It's like, you can come and join me. Agent of the year, George Mendes. Yeah. Um, he, George Mendes got an award when we were at um, the Web Summit. Yeah. He just, he, he had a broken leg, did he? He, he shuffled yeah, up on crutches. Some sort of injury, yeah. He, I, I'm not sure how he managed to sustain that, but he, he's, the guy his mantelpiece from, is full. The guy from NASA gave him the award. I just remembered. Yeah. That was like, astronaut George Mendes. Which one of these two is the... Uh, like uh, I, w- I was saying to the lads outside that we used to get excited about Irish footballers joining Manchester United now we get excited about them linking up with George Mendes it's like the new pride I'm going to get a George Mendes jersey with Matt Doherty's name on the back of it it's a huge moment for Irish football um, so Dan has a line here um, Doherty's comfort at the top flight might mean a number of middlemen are keen to work with a player who would cost a prospective buyer more than £10 million in today's market £10 million I think he'd be a bit more than that would he? yeah definitely good quality right back yeah, like ten, I would say twenty million at the very least, right? Like I mean, he's got himself to a point where he's an extremely high-profile fullback in the Premier League. Is he extremely high-profile in Ireland? Like if you're sitting, <coughs> yes, he if is. If you're sitting, go through, go through any player of the month in any season. In the talk sports studio, are you banging on about Matt Doherty half as much as we are? You aren't. No, but if you are having a conversation about the best right back in the Premier League. Well, maybe not that, but if you are... Five right backs in the Premier League. So the way Seamus Coleman used to be talked about in terms of ah. who, do, who do Manchester United need to go and sign? Yeah, not Matt Doherty. Well, he's getting to that. Can he get to that level? Or, or like, but Seamus Coleman and Leighton Baines were considered the best Yeah, no, partnership. granted, granted. I'm, so. not, I'm not saying he's at that level yet. I am saying, though, that if you are having a conversation about any of the top six, looking at a full-back... I'm sure that he pops up in those conversations, does he? Like, he's been one of the more impressive. He's uh, to a huge amount of the Premier League audience and new name on the scene this year yeah. as well. So I think that all adds up to a guy that you can definitely say the trajectory is firmly on the rise. And I don't see why people aren't talking about him in that way. I would say Wolves would be stupid to sell him for anything less than £20 million. Pounds. Yeah, and so do you sign with uh, Mendes and think, well, this is a win-win. That means I'm in, I'm in the inner circle and also they're happy to sell players because that's what the point of this thing is, isn't it? I don't, I don't really know what the point of the Wolves experiment is, I have to say. Sorry, maybe I got that wrong. Maybe, maybe it's not to get Matt Doherty and sell him on and make a lot of money for the club and George Mendes. Maybe they're thinking of creating their own Super League, kind of like the rugby, where it's... The, the Portuguese Premier Division and Wolves. Yeah. It's just a breakaway league. Yeah. Uh, goal standard. Wolves dump Liverpool out of FA Cup. Um, you know, not a bad goal by uh, Neves. Neves thanked the football for his goal last night. Did he, yeah. He was uh, himself and Conor Cody were being interviewed by the BBC after the match. And uh, the BBC presenter said to Ruben Neves, well, you obviously knew that was going into the top corner. And he was like, I have a request for Premier League that the ball is Mitra. And uh, Conor Cody corrected him to say mitre. Uh, so maybe that's the, an interesting way of getting Ruben Neves back in the goals. He scored in the first day of the season with an absolute screamer, but I can't recall any absolute like worldies from uh, Ruben Neves since then until last night. It was a fantastic strike, and maybe all he needs is a uh, mitre ball, as he says. <coughs> Bless you. Oh my God! Excuse me. <laughs> Yeah, so that's, uh, there's more Dottie Rear stuff there. On a knife edge, Van Gran urges Munster to embrace European pressure. And uh, Spurs boss wants to spend 20 years in London like Wenger. Apparently he's going to go meet Wenger. Yeah, that's what, that's what he said. He's going to get some long-term relationship advice from Arsene Wenger. How do you do this for so long? How do you manage to put up for it for so long? He's, he's obviously thinking about seeing other people at, at the moment. But Arsene Wenger will tell him to stay committed to his one true love. Um, I mean, it's not a million miles away from the situation that Wenger was in, though, right? Continue to make us money. Finish in the top four, never win a trophy, although Wenger won seven FA Cups, uh, which I only read today. I was like, that's amazing. Mm. Like, 
Uh, when, I thought the FA Cup didn't matter. When we were kids, seven was the most that any club had won. Villa had won seven. Some other team, some crappy team, um, had won seven. And Man United were just, just winning their seventh. And then he won seven in his time there. I said, what? And that might be one of the reasons why it doesn't matter. Arsene Wenger's career, generally, the last, the last half of it considered to be a failure. And all he did was win the FA Cup every year. <laughs> it's like, no. The Arsenal fans are not happy about that. That's sort of respectful. I got the flu jab yesterday. That's, what, uh, that's what's going on here. Is that not supposed to work the other way around, no? Uh, they say you'll get a little bit of a head cold, maybe, if you're unlucky. Um, so, neck and neck. Capital rivals hard to separate in race to reach League Cup final. I mean, these games are good. These League Cup semi-finals are good. Is it better than the FA Cup? Way better. Under lights, knockout football, two good teams actually going FA for the same tournament. Nice last night. Um, and Verdana heading for Bouverdere rematch. So the enemy could well come from within as Bouverdere targets a record equaling third successive victory in the champion hurdle after his stablemate and Christmas hurdle conqueror Verdana Blue was yesterday described as an intended runner in the Challenge Festival one-day highlight. Day one highlight, not one day. Back page of the Herald this morning is leading with Liverpool. Klopp's Red Cubs bitten by Wolves. So Liverpool's second string knocked out as United draw Arsenal and Pot James to emulate Wenger's long reign as well is the other story there in the back page of the Herald this morning. The star then is pure gold. Klopp's cup flop stunned as Ruben fires Wolves to glory. And uh, Murphy's ruled out. So Michael Murphy's going to go under the knife. He's going to miss the first half of the Division 2 campaign for Donegal this year in the Allianz League. Uh, he is getting knee surgery. And Sexton talk is dismissed, says Derek Foley. Leinster moved swiftly yesterday to Cam Fears. Out half Johnny Sexton was a doubt for the Six Nations. Uh, back page of the mirror is You're Our Man, Ole. This is an exclusive by David McDonald that Manchester United's players want Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in the hot seat on a permanent basis. Uh, Marcus Rashford posting on Instagram yesterday uh, with a pretty good caption talking about it was like Solskjaer sitting down and then Rashford, Martial and I think somebody else sitting around him. Seconds left, uh, whipped in a perfect corner, Teddy flicked it on, the rest is history. Uh, which I presume wasn't the actual conversation, although I'm sure that's the conversation he wanted to hear. Uh, he's just kind of is he too buddy buddy with you sure it wasn't the real conversation well I'm not obviously I'm not sure maybe maybe it was I mean like if you're a Man United there are Man United fans right (coughs) Rashford is Rashford is yeah yeah. and Lingard like at some point you're going to go here come on come on what happened tell us I don't think I don't think not a great description by Oli like oh you know Give us a bit more detail there. Yeah, he's a much better orator than that. So I think if it was actually the real situation, he would have been a bit more detailed. Also, uh, Solskjaer isn't the type of person, I think, to, to blow his own trumpet in that manner. Maybe it was, maybe it was the, real, the real conversation. We'll, uh, we, we, I'm sure somebody will ask him at a press conference eventually. Uh, the back page of the Sun is the King's speech. Fergie tells stars, you can make us great. So it's not just Solskjaer who's doing great stuff at Manchester United. Alex Ferguson gave a rousing speech to their stars, telling them, you can make this club great again. And uh, Dunces with Wolves is the great headline on last night's uh, Wolves 2 Liverpool 1 match report. Klopp's cop kids KO'd. Uh, the Telegraph this morning is Neves seals victory with Wondergoal. Klopp's men crash out of FA Cup and Lovren injury blow adds to club's defensive crisis. And finally, the back page of The Guardian is Gold Rush. Neves Thunderbolts delivers knockout blow 
to Liverpool and Manchester United given Arsenal test to off to the Emirates in round four. Yeah, OK, so uh, between now and the start of the Six Nations, we're going to be updating our depth chart to see who will start, who should be starting and uh, who are the contenders for the starting positions when Ireland kick off the defence of their Six Nations crown against England on the opening weekend of the Six Nations. Um, we're going to talk with Bernard Jackman about the front row in just a minute. First, though, here is uh, some Keith Wood from last night on Monday Night Rugby. Uh, talking about the clubs playing weakened teams in the Pro 14 and the impact that has on the rest of the competition. But I would look at that and say for Leinster, they put out a team to win and win well, and they did that. Yeah. And I don't know that you can say to a fan, you've been shortchanged. You, you know, you by Ulster, though, there's an argument. Yeah, by Ulster, by Ulster maybe. By and, but, it, but I look at and Munster, actually put far more of their frontline guys up to Connacht, and maybe that was for one that they thought they could actually get the win over. And, you know, that's... Yeah. Like, I've got to say, it's such as such as life. I get a bit frustrated by it at times, but um, maybe it is about not having the three of them well, it, well, bang, well, bang, bang, bang. Yeah, maybe the that's, yeah, the that's the issue. That is the maybe thing, that's the, the issue. The, the, because the, the only away win across this, if we call it the, the provincial miniseries, was Munster away. Yeah. Now we sit here and scoff at the top fourteen because there's no away wins. That's just a slight danger. There's almost become an not an it's not so an, an unwritten rule the, per se, but there's. Generally, been a trend of lesser teams going away. Just having the three, the three match, the three week or the three weekends, bang bang bang. bang. Yeah. It, it, you're you're going to have to mix up the players of course, because yeah. you've got two big matches coming in afterwards, and it's on the back of two big games. But I'm going to say that's one of the strengths of the of the of the Pro 14, and I may be disagreeing with something I said a couple of years ago on it because um, I'm looking at every of all the other players that are playing for England, they're all injured. Sure. They have an unbelievable um, uh, injury profile in, from, from the English squad. They've guys kind of coming back and not really getting a chance and suddenly they're going to go and play in the next two big matches and then they've another... Four, you know, there's, there's very few gaps anymore. All right, that's uh, Keith Wood talking about the Pro 14. I'm delighted to have got Bernard Jackman with us this morning. Bernard, good morning. See, how are you doing? Good morning, gents. A quick, word, good, a quick word before we get to your... Um, Death charts about what Keith Wood was saying there in terms of the, the weakened teams. Is it a frustration for the other countries that sometimes the Irish provinces are able slash allowed to put out weakened teams in these games, or does it matter? Yeah, I think it was at the start of the season. There was a lot of, um, I suppose, talk about it in the media and among fans in Wales when Leinster sent uh, a second-string uh, team to, to Cardiff Blues on, on the first night, and but then they managed to win the game, so um, everyone had to shut up. I think... I think in Wales, um, definitely there's a bit of envy around the strength and depth that the Irish teams have. Um, I do think, though, if you look at the last weekend when Ulster had to send a, a weakened team to Leinster, I think maybe three into pros in a row is a little bit much. Um, I think by the end of that that weekend, or that cycle, you know, and it's, it's a week leading into Europe as well, where the Irish teams all are in a pretty good place, that there is that temptation to, to rotate. So I think the interprovincials. I, I, I love when they're full, fully uh, fledged affairs. It was great to see like Johnny Sexton go down to Toma Park over Christmas, and maybe there's a, there's an argument to play that third interprovincial somewhere else in the uh, in the calendar. So when we see the Irish provinces play against each other, it's it's next to full strength teams, and we get a real good. Irish trial scenario and see exactly where everyone stands. Yeah, and just a word about the English um, teams. Apparently, want uh, to curtail the length of the. Heineken Cup, um, essentially they're, they're trying to introduce a few fewer fixtures as under the guise of player welfare. Um, this all just seems to be the continuing land grab of the, um, 
the English Premiership really and them trying to assert their preeminence over everything else that's happening in European rugby at the moment? Yeah, they've got their way with the Champions Cup to a certain extent. You know, they broke away um, uh, in terms of they, they forced ERC to break up and change the way the way it's run. Um, and this is another, as you say, land grab um, opportunity. I think it's really important. This is where the you know the, the unions need to be very strong. Obviously, there's a very strong link with the with the English Union through the Six Nations. It's a massive cash cow in its own right. And um, if the Premiership club owners are allowed to dictate um, the way the season looks. You can be guaranteed that you know our interests won't be at um, will be high on their agenda. So it's really important that uh, the Irish Rugby Football Union, the Welsh Rugby Football Union, the Scottish Rugby Football Union, you know, are very very strong on this. We make sure that the uh, the Guinness Pro 14 teams um, are very much considered in any in any schedule change. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the depth chart because um, one of the things I'm most interested in front row play is like the individual players obviously have to look after exactly what they're supposed to do. But in a scrum, do different players work? well and better in partnership with other players or are you just expected to be able to automatically work with whoever you're playing besides? I think that was definitely the case, you know, six, seven years ago um, when the Irish scrum probably didn't have the strength and depth or uh, the quality it has now. But I think what you've seen with Greg Feek being appointed as national scrum manager, he has a very strong influence over how everybody in Ireland scrums, you know, and that's even how they're taught to scrummage from 16s, 18s, under 20s. So there's a lot more uh, alignment all the way through, whereas before, you know, a Munster tighthead used to scrum differently than a Leinster tighthead. So if you were um, a Connacht hooker, you know, it wasn't a help to you in terms of being able to play with them because you have such a short preparation time going into international windows. Um, you know, that, that team um, cohesion is, is usually really important. But because, as I said, Greg Feek has, and Jerry Flannery has Munster scrummage in it, not the exact same way, but a similar ethos to how Leinster scrummage or Ulster scrummage under Aaron, um, Aaron Dundon, it's a lot easier for Joe Schmidt to come in and put the best players together. But having said that, I think if you look at the, the guys I've picked, you know, there's no shocks. I mean, um, you know, Keen Healy, Rory Best and Tyke Furlong have built up a lot of um, game time together as well. So they do know each other um, really, really well. But I think it's, it's, it's a strength of Irish rugby is that everybody's been taught to, to scrum with the same core principles. When feet goes, what happens then? Well, I think there's some very strong candidates internally. I mean, um, I suppose the the real test of, of someone's legacy is what comes after him. And I think if you look at, you know, Jimmy Duffy does a cracking job with the, with the Connick scrum with probably, you know, less resources than the others. Um, Aaron Dundon has has worked extensively with Greg Feek and he's obviously, and Dan McFarland um, is very familiar with Greg Feek. And then John Fogarty and, and Jerry Flannery, you know, are all part of this um, scrum development a coaching group that have come through over the last three or four years that are making sure um, that Greg Feek has passed on his knowledge. And I think, you know, I think someone like John, if it comes internally, well, then you're going to have a, a, a real consistency there. And I think we should we should look to have, I know sometimes you want to change, maybe um, focus a little bit after a cycle of a coach. But I think if you look at the Irish scrum stats, um, you know, we have the highest percentage of, of playable ball in, of any team in world rugby and that's testament to you know how strong our coaching is, and now, in fairness, how strong our personnel is as well. I mean, you know, there's guys, the guy, there's guys have come through like Andrew Porter, um, etc., who, you know, who weren't who weren't there. We were so reliant on people like John Hayes for, for years, but now there's there's real strength and depth in all positions. 
Bernard, you mentioned there a moment ago about the differences between Munster and Leinster's style a few years ago when it came to scrummaging. What were those differences stylistically and what is the definitive Irish style right now? Um, the definitive Irish style is, 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 is actually very, very honest. Um, massive focus on, on, on eight people scrummaging together, 16 feet on the ground, um, and actually not looking to win penalties per se off scrum. It's actually to have really solid platform to play off. Um, but yes, when they find a weakness... Um, and when the opposition change, when, when someone in the opposition breaks rank and changes his angle, well then obviously that that collective shove that comes together will will move forward. And then obviously the, the eights are very smart and they keep the ball in. So our scrum is our scrum is more focused towards getting the ball in and out um, and giving our backline you know a really good strike opportunity. The scrum is the best platform from a set piece point of view. The strike off obviously um, eight forwards are tied in. And that's very much Joe's philosophy and Leinster's philosophy. Um, and whereas before, I think, you know, we all had, an, we all tried to win penalties with our scrum, but it wasn't true scrum do- dominance. It was probably true a little bit of cheating and, and cunningness, and um, everyone had different ways to do that. Um, and you know, and uh, Munster's, Munster had their own set of calls, and we had our own set of calls in Leinster, for example. So it was very, very difficult to get that timing. Um, you know, in a, in a match week of an international, so everything is much more. It's more honest now, which sounds very basic, but um, it's about the philosophy of getting the ball away quickly and manipulating the angle more so than trying to win penalties. Because when you're very aggressive trying to win penalties, there's a risk of actually giving away penalties, and obviously discipline is a is a key factor for Joe Schmidt. So, an opposition team that makes a mistake against Ireland, basically, from what I gather here, they're screwed. Yeah, it's, a, it's about patience, basically. So the Irish team. Will be very very patient. They will they will stay in position. They will apply that pressure for six, seven, eight, nine seconds. And unfortunately for opposition, or fortunately for us, is that sometimes under that pressure somebody goes off script to the opposition. So for example, the loose head might just kick his hips a little bit to to, to to be in a better position. But as soon as he does that, it destabilizes the whole scrum. So what the Irish team being very good at is is that collective effort. The back rows. In the Irish scrum, will always scrum until the ball is out. Where sometimes the opposition, you know, you see their heads pop up like meerkats, and they're they're worried about the next strike. And then obviously, then Ireland would have an advantage of eight against seven, and suddenly then we get a nudge on. So it's not a it's not a passive scrum philosophy, but they know the order in which they want things to happen. So the first the first priority is to have good clean ball to to scrum off um, or to play off for the back line, and, and then obviously get into our into our phase attack. I don't know, did you see the TG Carr um, mic'd up Jerry Flannery before the game against Connacht and he was just doing bits of like, um, you know, like rubbing the shoulder of certain players and this needs to be in and just the, the specific details. I presume that's the type of stuff that they're working on relentlessly in training. Yeah, day in, day out. It's all about feel. So if you look at, um, sometimes, you know, sometimes in the heat of the moment with the crowd, etc., you can get carried away and become individual and what he's trying to do there is just make sure that their senses are aware of where the hooker is binding, um, for example, I think he, he, yeah, he was he was talking to the tight props, uh, tight props, and who said just making sure that their shoulders are out. It's just all about really good cues for the referee as well, and being able to feel feel where the strength is in the in the scrum and not become individualised. And um, yeah, that that kind of thing is it will be coming all the way down now to to little scrum clinics that are happening with the best eighteen year old props in the in the country. So when they go up to the next level. It's it's far less daunting. I mean, I you know, there was a time when you would need a prop to come out of an academy, and you might need twenty games to to adapt. Whereas he still needs some games to adapt, but he's going into a system where it's very very similar to what he's been doing. Obviously, at a 
it's like a higher level of pressure and power, but at least he's not trying to have to learn new ways of doing things. Let's talk about your depth chart here. So first off, um, we're going to start with uh, the loose head position first. So it's Keen Healy, Jack McGrath and Dave Kilcoyne here. We've got Keen Healy ahead of Jack McGrath and Dave Kilcoyne. When you think back a couple of years when McGrath was the starting uh, loose head for the Lions, at that point it looked like he was going to be the starting loose head for Ireland for the next half decade, but Keen Healy's resurgence means that he's one of the best loose heads in the world at the moment. Yeah, and he always he always should have been, to be honest, and always kind of he was when he was twenty three, twenty four, twenty five, and he was very unlucky. He had a he had an injury where he lost power in his in his hand, um, but he actually managed to play through uh, a lot of it. But his form obviously dipped because he wasn't he wasn't fully one hundred percent fit. So it was a nerve it was a nerve issue, which you know it was very frustrating. He didn't know when he was going to get back full uh, full power, and that affected his scrummaging to a certain extent. But it also affected his his ball carrying and his tackling. But He's overcome that now, and I think what we saw was, you know, Jack McGrath went to a Lions tour, and Keane got a proper preseason, um, which he ne- he probably never had because he was generally involved in summer tours with Ireland. So, um, and he's an unbelievable athlete. Um, you know, he's he's probably the most powerful rugby player I'd say has ever played for Ireland, and um, he's back now. He's he's in great shape. He's probably lighter than he ever was. Similar to Kid Coyne as well. Kid Coyne. You know, Kikoyan has, has really slimmed down. He's another powerful athlete. He's in there as, as third choice on, on my rankings. Um, and he's a guy that if he came into the Irish squad on a bench or started, he'd have absolutely no worries about him. He's a real impact player. Um, and Jack McGrath's probably a bit unlucky. He hasn't done a lot wrong. But um, like Jack McGrath would start for any other team, I would say, in the Champions Cup. Um, and he would probably start for nearly every other team internationally. But we have two world-class loose head props um, with those two. And it's... Um, and, and that's not using loose head uh, loosely. Onto uh, world class, yeah. Onto onto Hooker, we've got uh, Rory Best obviously in the starting role at the moment. You've got Sean Cronin backing him up, and Niall Scannell is third. There's some doubt about whether or not Joe Schmidt sees Sean Cronin as the automatic replacement for Rory Best to start matches. Certainly, when Cronin didn't start in Australia, there was serious questions asked at that point about what Joe Schmidt's intention was. But maybe that was just about a year and a half out from the World Cup saying, well, I need strength and depth and I'm not just going to put all my eggs in your basket. Yeah, I think so. Uh, listen, I think, um, I think Cronin's in there because he just keeps getting better and better. I mean, uh, you know, he scored 40 tries between his Leinster and Connacht career already. I mean, there's, there's a lot of top-class wingers who haven't that kind of, um, you know, try-scoring ratio. And, um, I, I, you know, I, I was humming and hawing about whether I actually put him number one, to be honest. I think, you know, his form... Is top class and and Rory, Rory definitely you know is obviously his, his best years are behind him. But I thought Rory's performance against the All Blacks in November, he just laid down a serious marker again to say you know he is um, he's the man of possession and he won't be budged. And I think you know I think Joe will be very smart. You know Dan McFarlane will be very smart in terms of how they manage Rory through to the to the to the World Cup. But uh, you know Sean Cronin is breathing down Rory's uh, Rory's neck. Um, but I do think as well, I mean, you know, Sean, uh, Sean Cronin is a brilliant impact player off the bench. Um, and Rory is just so important. His leadership, his, his, um, his relationship with referees is very, is very smart and very strong. And uh, he's a very, very good scrummer. He's probably a better scrummer than, than Sean. Um, so I, I do think Rory will hopefully injury-free, be, you know, go to the World Cup as number one. But I, I certainly would go for Sean Cronin as, as number two. Um, because I just think he has something that probably around the pitch I don't think any other hooker in world rugby. Um, you know, Dan Coles in in New Zealand at the best of his form is very explosive. But I think Sean has 
um, Sean is a little bit more than anyone else at World Rugby in terms of his play around the field. How can you tell Rory Best is a slightly better scrummager? Well, well, uh, this is in, um, this is based on my experience. Obviously, that's, that's five or six years ago. Um, Sean, Sean, I'm sure has, has improved, but um, Rory so that, Best that's is going better. against him, is it? Yeah, right. Yeah, well, I think so, and I think I think it will be you know uh, most most of the props and locks in Ireland who, who played with Rory uh, and continue to play with him would say. He's the best, uh, the best scrummager. So it's, it, you know, it's it's a little bit surprising because he's not the biggest guy in the world. He probably doesn't throw around, you know, the most um, weight in the gym, but he's just technically incredibly strong and very flexible through his hips. Um, and he can get he can get himself into a much lower, stronger position that Sean could have at the time. I'm sure Sean's worked on it. Uh, but I, I do know I've spoken to um, to players who are still playing. You know, Rory Best is is still regarded as the best scrummaging hooker right. in Ireland. Which is hard to see on TV, but um, when you've been when you when you played in, in the front five or you played against hookers, you know, there's certain hookers who, who have that Shane Byrne, for example, was a phenomenal scrummager as well. Um, and, you know, when you played against them that a, a strong scrummaging hooker has a massive influence on a scrum. Everyone talks about tie head props and obviously they're very important, but um, a, a strong scrummaging hooker can make up for a lot of um, you know deficiencies in other areas of the scrum. Is it possible for Rory Best to get the best out of himself in the Six Nations and the World Cup this year? Yeah, I think so. But I, I also think that you know maybe Joe will be smart and um, maybe not overplay him as well in terms of minutes. You know, um, obviously we've got two very tough games. We've got a tough draw in, in total, but um, I do think that there won't be any mad rotation in, in, in the Six Nations. I think if you haven't played in November, bar, you know, barring you're out for injury in November, it's going to be very settled. But I do think in terms of, you know, if you can get 55 minutes, 50 minutes um, and rest them up a little bit, maybe not play against Italy, um, that'll, be, that'll be a big help. And also, you know, if Ulster don't make the knockout stages of the, of the Pro 14 um, or don't make knockout stages of Europe, that might just limit his, his game time a little bit. Um, he, he missed a bit, a bit of time at the start of the season as well. But listen, it's a, it's, a, it's a fine balance between playing enough to be informed and obviously not overplaying as well. But uh no doubt the Irish system will manage him um, you know, as best they can. All right, let's move on to tight head. It's uh, Tyke Furlong, Andrew Porter, and John Ryan makes uh, number three here. So what, what is the scale of the difference between Tyke Furlong and Andrew Porter at the moment? Um, around the pitch, there is still a difference, but Porter, um, Porter is becoming more and more influential. I just think Tyke, Bur- Tyke Furlong is the, is, the, is the best tight head prop in the world. You know, he has no perceived weakness. He lifts very well. Um, he tackles very well. He cleans out very well when he's legal, and uh, he's um, an incredibly good scrummager. And he's he's as honest as days long. So um, Porter has massive. Porter is very similar to Keen Healy in terms of really, really explosive. Um, I think Furlong's got a really good balance between having enough power and explosivity, but really good endurance as well. So he doesn't, you know, he doesn't crash. If he had to play Ty Furlong for eighty minutes. Um, I have no doubt he could he could be as good in the 77-78 minute as he was in the in the seventh and eighth. But I think Porter and Dukeen to a certain extent, you know, are, are more fast twitch and and probably don't have the same endurance qualities. Now they're, they're very very fit men, but um, you know Porter has that power. Porter still has to get that experience um, of scrummaging, you know, against the best in the world, you know, more regularly. He, he's 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 very very powerful and his power. And his strength get him out of trouble. But when you're someone like Tyke Furlong, and you've had the experience he has, even though he's still relatively young for tight head, 
you know, he is, there's no scenario he hasn't been in. And because of that, he knows the solution very quickly. Where sometimes with younger props, they have to get into the dressing room at half time or it's Monday morning under review where the coach has to show them four angles and they see then what they're up against and what, how to fix it. So that's the beauty of having, um, you know, furlong. And John Ryan, to a certain extent as well, you know, he's, he's probably come through a lot slower, um, but he now is a very, very capable tight head prop um, and, you know, he's, he's been around the block. So we're in, a good, we're in a good position going into the World Cup uh, and the Six Nations if those three men stay fit. Is there anybody who is close but not in the top three at the moment in any of these three positions who might make a bolt if, if there are injuries or even yeah, if Yeah, honestly, I think um, I really like Buckley and Dennis Buckley and Connacht, to be honest, but uh, hasn't really been in Joe's, um, in Joe's squad, so he's probably unlikely to, um, to bolt through. There's, you know, Tracy, uh, Tracy in, in Leinster. Um, you know, James Cronin was very was very in great form a year, year ago, but Kilcoyne's kind of pushed push back over him. You know, I think, listen, there is guys outside those those nine players, for sure. We have good depth, um, but they'll be, for me, they're the, they're the nine front runners. How, how are we, how do we compare to other front rows around the world? Like, are there, is there, is the all-black front row just as good as us? Are they slightly ahead of us? Or where where are we? No, we're, um, the all-blacks actually are in a little bit of trouble, um, Scrum wise, they they've suffered from the um, the amount of props that have gone to France in particular. Um, so their depth chart, they keep discovering new props, um, but the problem is they don't have Super Rugby is a very different animal at, in terms of uh, front row developments at set piece compared to Champions Cup. So even though they, their players might have their young props might have 40, 50 Super Rugby games, unless they played 40, 50 internationals. Um, they're not going to be the same level as, as our guys because of how important the set piece is here as a, as a weapon. So I think our front row depth, I would say, I'd say our, um, our starting front row could go into any World 15. Um, and yeah, our, our depth is, is as strong as any country in the world. France will have you know very good individuals, but because there's no alignment between the top 14 clubs, coaching styles and, and the national side, when they go into an, into, into the Six Nations squad with France, it's all it's all a bit of a muddle. So you have Slimani, for example, scrummaging the way he scrums with his club, but that mightn't be um, aligned to what their loose head is doing. So you don't get that um, you know unit effects uh, and collective collective power that Ireland can manage. I'm sure with the, the level of rugby IQ they have down in New Zealand, the All Blacks realise that this is an issue. Um, like, are they doing anything to combat this? Is there anything that you can see that they can do to turn it around in time for, for the World Cup? Oh, yeah, for sure. Listen, um, you know, Mike Cron is... The great feat we learned under Mike Cron. Um, and, you know, he's the, he's the All Blacks uh, forwards coach. He's been one of the, you know, the gurus in world scrummaging for probably 25 years. But there is a fine balance between... You know, I, I really spoke highly about Greg and, and the alignment between Jerry Flannery, etc. But if you look at the experience that those three loose heads have, you know, two of those three tight heads have, and the one who doesn't have experience is, is Andrew Porter. You know, he's been getting big game experience quickly, and he's in a really good environment where he scrummages against Keane Healy and Jack McGrath on a Tuesday. You know, with a with international quality pack behind him, so he's not in there. You know, with a with an academy team. So um, we're very lucky that we we have with only four teams um, and being able to keep our best players in the country, um, I think we're in a better position. So Mike Cron would have the IQ for sure, but whether he can't beat 
experience in, in games or in, in, internally at training. And because there's so many players leave New Zealand, New Zealand rugby, and now young All Blacks are starting to leave earlier than before. You, historically, they waited until the World Cup cycle was over, but now they realise that there's more money to be got leaving a year and a half before the World Cup um, because obviously there's more players in the market post-World Cup. So they have started to lose um, some really talented players abroad earlier than before. So I think that's shifted the balance in, in our favour. Brendan, we haven't spoken to you since um, you left Dragons. Uh, obviously, it's been a, a difficult enough end to your time there. Have you reflected on exactly what went wrong just yet? Have you only to put your finger on it? Yeah, listen, I think, yeah, I, I, have, I have no regrets about what we, we tried to do there. Um, it was always a rebuild project. It was always likely, um, unless we got a lot of luck, that the next man or the man after him or, 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 uh, would, would benefit from it. Because don't forget, we played... Uh, you know, and we have 21 players that debuted last year. Some of them were teenagers. So, um, it's it, the big problem for Welsh rugby at the moment is is funding, um, and we obviously the Dragons have the lowest funding um, in Wales. So there's a couple of meetings on I think over the next few days to try and uh, rectify that balance, and hopefully, hopefully the Dragons and 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 the Welsh rugby will get the funding they need to be competitive. Because at the moment, you know, it's very much uh, the Irish teams who are looking strong in the, in the Pro 14. Um, you know, and obviously Ed, Teresa doing really well, which is which is great. And, and, and Edinburgh, and that was good to talk in the last few weeks. But I think the big issue for for the Dragons is, is is funding. The good thing for me was we developed a lot of young players, we recruited a lot of young players. Results weren't good enough, so as head coach, I have to uh, take responsibility for that. But uh, definitely, I learned a lot. And, Looking forward to putting that in practice somewhere else. Yeah, and is that the that is the plan? Is to go back in as a head coach? You haven't had your, uh, you haven't been pissed oh. off to the point where you're like, okay, I'm going to go and and become a defensive coach or an attack coach or a scrum coach or something like that into the future. Yeah, I would. I, I would to be honest. I would go back to being an assistant coach if it was in the right club, um, and it was a you know a good head coach who I you know could serve an apprenticeship under to a certain extent. Um, but I do love head coaching as well, so. Um, listen, we'd see the problem. The fortunate thing is that when you're out of coach as a, as, or out of work as a coach, you probably need someone else to be left out of work, and that's not a nice thing. So um, I'm, I'm going to keep myself busy and uh, you know, you know, watch plenty of rugby and keep analysing and uh, see see what comes up. You say you learnt a lot, Bernard, and I'm sure you learnt a lot about the, the politics of Welsh rugby and other things. But as a coach, solely as a coach, what is the, the biggest thing you learned? Um, I think you need experience through your team. To be honest, I think. You know, we we did what Ulster did the weekend. You know, we probably threw a lot of young players out at the same time, um, and that's you know that's not good for them either. It's too hard. It's too hard for them to learn. So um, a big focus over the summer was you know bringing in people like Richard Hibbard and Ross Moriarty, etc., to just give us a you know a bit of a bit more of a spine in our team. And when we have to rotate, when you when you have a small squad. Um, and you're developing players, you will have to rotate. But I, I think definitely for me, as a coach, last year, you know, we didn't... I, 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 I'm responsible for it. We probably put too many young players out at the same time. And while they did get experience, I think probably it was probably too traumatic for them. And because they didn't have enough experience in the side, it probably hampered their, their ability to learn from that experience. So, um, yeah, having a really good balance between experience and, and use um, was, was definitely key to not just winning but you know helping players develop quicker well listen uh, enjoy the time off I hope it's really short and that you're back in the game really soon Bernard thanks for making the time to talk to us this morning thanks guys have a good day Bernard Jackman giving us his uh, death chart in the front row there ahead of the 
Six Nations and we'll be doing the second row and uh, the back row later on uh, this weekend, early next week. So, Owen, it's been a bad week for footballers. It certainly has. There's a, a couple of them, you know, we, we love professional footballers and sometimes you just got to feel a little bit sorry for them. Uh, the one man who everybody knows this week who's had a bit of a tough time is Wayne Rooney. His mugshot was uh, published yesterday, arrested uh, in December at Dulles Airport. Great it's, hair, though. Great hair. Fantastic hair. The, the hair transplant was one of the best things Wayne Rooney ever did, actually. It's, it's really starting to suit him. Uh, so, the Sun were kind of reporting it yesterday, but the Sun have kind of gone above and beyond the line of duty and have Quotes, not quotes as such, uh, but uh, a good source close to Colleen Rooney in today's paper. There's a, a headline that says, Wait till I get Rue home. Wayne Rooney gets hairdryer treatment from raging wife Colleen after booze bust at US airport. And now the article says that during a blistering telephone call, she yelled, How many times do you need to be told? Uh, and the Sun also have these quotes, which we can show you now from a, a source, an unnamed source. Uh, she told him he wasn't going to go out of the house again without her supervision. Colleen was really pissed off at Wayne for getting into trouble again. She was mortified when she got the call about about it and wanted him straight home. She called him an idiot for doing something so stupid and uh, they go on to say when he's been drinking and gets into trouble it upsets her because she thinks it gives a bad impression of their relationship. She's told him before that people will assume he's unhappy if they see him out drinking <laughs> but Colleen did see the funny side later when she saw how ridiculous the situation was. They're loving their life as a family in the US and are moving on. So uh, bad week for Wayne Rooney. Probably a worse week for Wayne Hennessy, uh, so Crystal Palace's Max Meyer posted this on Instagram the other day. I'm not sure if you saw it. I'm sure many people will have. Uh, so Wayne Hennessy there at the back left doing what appears to be a, a salute replicating a past dictator on this continent. He had to clarify his situation, uh, Wayne Hennessy, and said, Yesterday evening I had a meal with my teammates and we had a group photograph. I waved and shouted at the person taking the picture to get on with it and at the same time put my hand over my mouth to make the sound carry. It's been brought to my attention that frozen in a moment by the camera, this looks like I'm making a completely inappropriate type of salute. I can assure everyone I would never, ever do that and any resemblance to that kind of gesture is absolutely coincidental. Love and peace, Wayne. Now you may say that's all bullshit, but at Rob Welsh 2000 presumably a Palace fan came to Wayne Hennessy's defence on Twitter and posted this photo thought Wayne's excuse was a load of bullshit until I saw this uh, to which somebody replied uh, this is a better save than Hennessy has ever made which is a, a pretty good put down now uh, a bad week for Wayne Rooney a bad week for Wayne Hennessy a bad week as well for Andres Iniesta who posted this on social media the other day because uh, it oh was the Three Kings Day celebrations and two people in that photo in blackface. There has been no word from Iniesta since then, but according to the BBC, the role of Balthazar is often played by a white man in blackface in Spain. So that's the cultural context you need for that, and I think the less said about that, uh, the better. And then finally, it's been a, a bad week for Frank Ribery, which is such a shame because it started off in such a good week. He went to Dubai, he met up with Salt Bay, and he got a gold-plated steak. Have a look at this. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, the gold plating doesn't do it for me. Here, here we go, here's the money shot. There we go, Frank Ribery is Salt Bay. He, uh, the caption on it was, no better way to start the year than with a dash of salt and a visit to my Turkish brother. And there he is uh, kissing his Turkish brother. So there was a huge backlash to this. Uh, fans weren't happy. Some people called him ostentatious. But Ribery fired back in what will go down as the statement of 2019. Now I should warn that if there are any young years to cover them up because... Uh, 
Frank Ribery does go out of his way to really put down his haters. He says, For 2019, let's put the dots back on the I's and the crosses on the T's. Let's start with the jealous ones, the haters, surely born from a busted condom. Fuck your mothers, your grandmothers, and even your family tree. I owe you nothing. My success is above all thanks to God, to me, and my loved ones who believed in me. For others, you were only pebbles in my socks. Then, concerning these pseudo-journalists who have always criticised me, my acts, the latest example, the price of what I eat... When I make charitable donations, because I've learned to give a lot when I receive a lot, why doesn't the major national media broadcast this? No, you prefer to talk about a holiday that I spend with family, you scan my actions, what I eat, etc. Oh yes, for this kind of triviality, you are present. Uh, now, Byron have announced that they've fined uh, Frank Ribery for his comments. Uh, they clarified that Ribery was at the restaurant as part of an ad campaign, though, so he did not pay for the steak. That is all we need to take away from this. So, I'm not sure who had the worst week. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say... Well, actually, probably well, Wayne Rooney's the only person who's got kind of a black mark on his criminal record for probably <laughs> the least egregious crime for a few sleep, sleeping tablets and a few cocktails. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to see some video footage of that. Uh, somebody who had a bad week who turned it into a good week was Jason McAteer, uh, one of the stars of the Super Sixes at the weekend. You might have seen this, you might not, but he was on the football show last night talking with Joe and Kev. Have a look. It was a situation that escalated. Unfortunately, it was Michael Owen. Um because he probably was one of them players, I would say, would be slightly more protected or looked after. Um, and the referee made an absolutely atrocious call and sent me off and not him. Now, I'm not saying I should not have been sent off. I was a bit petulant. I didn't kick off the backside. I pushed him with my foot, which was a kind of like a, a loving kind of go on, off, off you go. And Michael understood that. He didn't get hurt. He wasn't hurt by it. Now, I, I, if he wants to send me off, then fine. Send me off. But Michael Owen must have been, should have been sent off for his part in, in that incident. And he wasn't. He was protected. And I said it on the telly. Maybe it was because it was Michael Owen and it was England and the referees were slightly more lenient towards towards these kind of situations. I've, um, I, I've, I've misjudged the, the mood here. I thought we were going to come on and have a big <laughs> laugh about it, actually. But well, you're, 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 you're genuinely a bit annoyed about it. Come on, let's lighten it up. What do you want to know? Well, I'll tell you what I would what, say, though. What, what did Michael Owen say afterwards? Are you, are you, did you, you, you knew each other reasonably well, or did you have a, a year together or no, as players? Oh, mate, years, years. Years, yes, okay, years, okay. Years, so you know each other. Listen, there's absolutely no problem with me and Michael Owen now, in the car afterwards, you know, we spoke about it afterwards. We laughed about it. We put our arms. I wanted to chin his mate, like his mate was sitting there. His mate was goading me as I was coming off. His fifty-five-year-old mate was standing up like a ten-year-old child, waving me off the pitch, telling me to go off your pot. The Star Sixes, not the Super Sixes. Uh, apologies for that, but yeah, you got the story. Uh, you've probably seen the footage by now. Michael Owen definitely deserved the top to hold, but you can't see the top to hold. You can't see uh, McIntyre kicking him. There was no close-up anyway. You can, no close-up. You, you can see he, the action. Can you? Yeah. The footage I saw, he was kind of pushing him away, and then it, it cut to Darren Bent looking confused, and then it cuts back and it's a red card. No, and then no, the, no, it happens was, after that. Yeah. Oh, all right. Oh, well, fair play. <laughs> yeah, we saw the Right in front of the referee. Too long didn't watch for you, was it? Yeah, pretty much. How are you? I'm very well, Jerry. We'll start with last night's football and Ruben Neves scored a stunning winning goal as Wolves dumped Liverpool out of the FA Cup. The Reds exited at the third round after a 2-1 loss at Molyneux. Jurgen Klopp made nine changes from the defeat at Manchester City. Rafael Camacho and Curtis Jones made their debuts while 16-year-old Kayana Hover came off the bench. Despite the defeat, manager Jurgen Klopp happy with how the youngsters did under pressure. I'm not sure what 
what you all would have said if we bring immediately from the beginning of our centre-half situation is Fabinho and, and Kijana, then probably a few very smart people tell me that I don't respect the competition or whatever. So we yeah, try to, to do all the things. And of course, on the other hand side, it doesn't make sense to bring a 16-year-old boy from the start. But you don't bring him, we wait until he's completely ready. But he did well. He came on, he did well. Obviously, um, that's how... Uh, it sometimes starts um, when you are really needed then you are not it's only about if you're good enough and not how old you are he did well so that was all okay now Wolves reward for knocking out the Premier League leaders is a trip to either Shrewsbury or Stoke in the next round the FA Cup's two most successful sides will also meet in the fourth round Arsenal drawn at home to Manchester United holders Chelsea will host Sheffield Wednesday or Luton while non-league Barnet were drawn to play Brentford after defeating Cardiff in the last round Gillingham will travel to Swansea Millwall will host Everton Accrington Stanley will play Derby or Southampton Brighton entertain West Brom and Bolton go to Bristol City two all London ties as well AFC Wimbledon host West Ham while Crystal Palace will take on Tottenham Potter Gammon got the winner for Newport. They shocked Leicester a trip to Middlesbrough. Await him and his teammates while Portsmouth will host QPR. Man City take on Burnley. It's Newcastle or Blackburn at home to Watford while Doncaster host Oldham. Mauricio Pochettino says Spurs fans can only demand a trophy after Daniel Levy gives him money to invest in the squad. Tottenham, the only Premier League side not to make a signing during the summer transfer window. Pochettino says he cannot be judged on his lack of silverware because the chairman, Daniel Levy, has not given him £300 to spend. Tottenham face Chelsea in the first leg of the League Cup semi-final at Wembley later. And Pochettino has warned that Spurs need to change their business approach. How we operate in four years or in five years didn't change. And that is the, is the point that sometimes the people talk about winning, winning title. One thing is to reduce the gap with the top four, to be competitive, to create a team capable to, to fight with the big size. But we, if we, after, we want to win title, we need to operate in a different way. At the moment, we operate in the same way that we operate five years ago when we arrived. And of course... Maybe we can win some title, but it's going to be a tough uh, job to do because <clears throat> in that situation, uh, every club in the last five years was improving a lot. The other day I, I saw a, a stat that in the last 10 years um, on, on England and Europe, how the, the team uh, were spending money. And I think we were on the, on the bottom. Yes, in Europe. On England and Europe. In rugby, Leinster return to the training pitch later as they continue to fine-tune preparations for the Champions Cup clash with Toulouse. Head coach Leo Cullen will be hoping Johnny Sexton plays some part to keep him in contention for selection. The Leinster out-half is rated as 50-50 after going off injured against Munster over the Christmas period. Well, Ian Keatley will likely leave Munster at the end of the season with Italy his most likely destination. The 42.ie reporting today that the out-half is considering an offer from Benetton Rugby. The 31-year-old has been with Munster since 2011. He's made 180 appearances for the province, but this season his chances have been limited under Johan van Graan. Joey Carberry's arrival saw Keatley fall down the pecking order. He's now competing with Tyler Blyendahl, JJ Hanrahan and Bill Johnson for game time. He's made just four appearances off the bench for the province in the Guinness Pro 14 this season.
Well, in golf, Podrick Harrington will be named as the captain of Team Europe for the Ryder Cup later today. The Dubliner is set to become the third Irish man in the last four Ryder Cups to lead Europe into the showdown with the States. Paul McGinley was skipper in 2014 for the Win at Glen Eagles with Darren Clark captaining the side unsuccessfully in 2016. Harrington has made it clear talking last year that he was eager to succeed Thomas Bjorn. Yeah, I think I would. Uh, you know, it's... You know, it's obviously going to be difficult going over there trying to trying to beat them on their home soil, but uh, it, it seems to fit very nicely with everything. You know, I have a good profile in the states, and it's yeah. not so far from Chicago, so good Irish connection there. So yeah, yeah it, it you know it, it is all lining up that uh, I will put my name in the in the hat for that one. Now, the Japanese kickboxer Tenshin Nasakawa has accepted Conor McGregor's challenge for another exhibition fight in Tokyo. Nasakawa was beaten by Floyd Mayweather in a boxing bout on New Year's Eve. The unbeaten boxer dropped the 20-year-old three times before his corner threw in the tail. McGregor challenged him by saying, I wish to go to Tokyo to face Tenshin Nakasawa in a mixed martial arts exhibition bout. Before this summer, please arrange this this instant. You're sincerely the champ champ. He got a response and he said he would fight McGregor, but only on his terms. He said, dear Mr. McGregor, thank you very much for remembering my name. I'm honoured that you would even consider fighting me. 58 kgs, kickboxing rules would probably get us in the ring sometime in the very near future. Gotta give credit to Nasakawa for like people criticise, oh Floyd Mayweather always seeing the dollar signs in his eyes and Conor McGregor always seeing the dollar signs in his eyes. This guy Nasakawa has managed to set up fights with Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor and now wants to do it on his own terms. Like one of the most famous boxers on the planet and the most famous MMA fighter in history and he's going to fight both of them. Nasakawa deserves to be world champion at hustling. Absolutely. Did the Mayweather thing happen? Yeah. yeah. He got knocked out like instantly. How? Well, well like boxed. I thought the Mayweather thing wasn't going to happen. No, he went into it, initially said that he didn't know it was going to be a fight. He thought it was just a joke thing for a couple of billionaires and they'd all get a few million for dancing around the ring. Then he realised he will get a few billion for dancing, million for dancing around the ring. So agreed to it in the end, after right. pulling out. And was the footage any good? I didn't actually watch it, but I saw some photos that kind of stopped me from watching it. Yeah, like last eight. week. All oh, right, OK. So I had better things to be doing than watching <laughs> that prick Mayweather. So I don't feel too guilty about it. Well, you know, speak for yourself. Some of us don't have better things to do. <laughs> you didn't say it, though. Well, I, I watched it. I watched it. I read fight reports, which is even worse. This is a bit like our uh, Arsene Wenger, who won the FA Cup last season. Well, you know, let's forget that conversation never happened. Have you remembered yet? Chelsea. Uh, you done? Yeah. All right, good stuff, Darren. Thanks for that. Here's um, Pat Nevin talking about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and how he's managed to turn things around, particularly for the forward players at the club. Have a look. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, um, so far... I've realised some things are important in management. Uh, this is me talking, by the way, not Solskjaer. But uh, I'm boiling it down to uh, say nice things about your players and the club and tell them to pass the ball forward and uh, sit back and see what happens. <laughs> and massage a few egos. Yeah, and important. Uh, make people feel comfortable. Um, and maybe if you haven't done a huge amount of managing at the very, very top level, you look at some of those players and say, they're quite good. Why don't you go out and do what you're good at? Mm. You know, mm. it's not what I want you to do. What you're good at, but do it in a positive sense. That's to take nothing away from Solskjaer because it's clear that he's made a difference in a couple of players. Lukaku looks quite different now. Absolutely, he just he's running in a different way. His movements in a different direction at the moment. I've heard him already talking about the fact that he's just been told to play with his head facing the goal. You know, it's almost like I can remember again, a, a years ago, a couple of years ago. I got uh, one lesson, my only ever golfing lesson. And at the end of the lesson, they said, just one thing to tell you, mate. See, when you finish a shot, your buckle's facing the front. 
changed my game completely. Mm. Sometimes that's all you need. That one little line, um, and it's just a little line. He's obviously said to Lukaku, he's looked at him and thought, stop playing with your back to goal. Yeah. Just go the other way, mm. play on the shoulder. And he looks a different player and he's getting into better positions now. Your buckle's facing the front. Yeah. It should be facing the front, or it shouldn't be. Well, you should be, your, your body shape should be, yeah, exactly. Isn't it? Why, did you think that that's not... I, was, I wasn't sure. I mean, if, I mean, if Pat Nevin's giving out good golf tips, let's share them with the world. Well, so what, when you take a golf shot, your body stays kind of uh, perpendicular to the, it the whole... It moves, but like, yeah, how much does it move? Well, it should your be a... Your crotch needs to face Yeah, it should forward. be a full 90-degree movement. You can come to me for swing lessons anytime. I guess you live and learn. How, how is your golf game? Uh, the the first time I ever played golf, a club went flying about hundred yards, and it was it was in the middle of like fifty people. Oh, right. Did you hit someone? Uh, very close. Okay. It's a it's a kind of a very traumatic story. We'll get to it some other time. That was from the football show last night. Uh, let's talk with Graham Hunter. Uh, Graham, good morning to you. How are you doing? Ciao. Crotches, swinging, and buckles. What 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 <laughs> what, what 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 have I strayed into? Yeah. Sorry about that. Right. New year, new jar. Um, all I got to saw, Shar, is uh, transformative impact on the front players. Um, is this a fairly obvious thing that we should just have expected, that we should have anticipated that a few minor tweaks would suddenly release the hounds that were ready to come from Manchester United players? I think if we extract stuff from what we've all been talking about over the, the length of our professional um, friendship, professional careers, then something that Pat was giving you, I think, a microscopic um, understanding of confidence okay he tweaked it in that, that he was talking about specific body shapes the way in which Lukaku has gone from looking a little bit uh, down in the dumps and clumsy despite being one of the players who was wholly committed to Mourinho and I think the broad brush approach if you say should we have expected it is that he mirrors although the effect on each of them is maybe has a different cause he mirrors what's happening right across that squad, which I think was not only blindingly obvious, but I know we've talked about, and I certainly have written about and said to you guys, that Mourinho was a drain on energy, that Mourinho was no longer applying as much attention to individual coaching, a flaw that he picked up in his second spell at Chelsea, if you ask. Um, anybody who witnessed, particularly the sacking season in his second spell at Chelsea, back turned to training, portfolio of information not as detailed as he once became famous for, for, pardon me. And not only did his relationship with individual players at Manchester United break down, um, when I use that phrase that he was a drain on their energy, he was also a drain on their confidence. When you get, um, I don't think, I, I take your underlying point that neither you nor Pat were calling Soskar a genius. He was applying um, his expertise, having been a very, very good striker. He was picking up on something that I think was pretty easy meat uh, in saying to Lukaku and to Rashford and to Lingard and to Pogba and to Matic, here are the things that I know you do well. Here's how I want you to do them fitting into a greater team pattern. And when you get better training sessions, when you get better enjoyment and, and above all, better confidence, then maybe your phrase about should we have expected it comes true. And I think the answer then is yes. This leads us nicely to Jose Mourinho, who is being linked with an immediate return to Real Madrid because of the situation that Real Madrid find themselves in. We talked about this, I don't know, a couple of months ago, almost was reminding us uh, a little bit earlier on in the show. Is it that realistic that it could happen so quickly? Um, realistic. Look, it's feasible. Would Florentino Perez, if things continue along the lines 
of the A-bar defeat away 3-0 for Santi Solari. If, the, if things were to continue along the lines of the way in which Roman had chucked away a viable win at Villarreal, 2-1 up, sat back. Um, not only then lost the lead, um, but looked as if they might lose the game. Solari then defended his tactics, saying, well, draws are important. The media jumped all over him. His team went out and played um, ridiculously poorly against uh, Real Sociedad. Um, Solari made mistakes in who he picked. And therefore, if that were to repeat once or twice more, is Florentino Perez capable of sacking his interim coach? Yes, that's a fact. Should he do that? No, I don't think so. And when you ask for an, uh, um, an actuarial assessment about realistic chance, Gerardo, you have to bring in the Mourinho factor. Mourinho is, is... One thing he hasn't lost is that he's savvy. He's scheming. I think I've said to you again in recent months, months ago, my belief that Mourinho had it as part of his grand plan that he could take over at Real Madrid from the summer... He saw that Real Madrid were ailing. The instant Zidane went away, he was knee-deep in Manchester United and expected to stay. He's twice turned down Florentino Perez since leaving being sacked the first time from Real Madrid. Florentino Perez's belief that Mourinho can set the club straight and can go on an aggressive attacking front foot against Football Club Barcelona is undiminished. Um, that's a fact. Um, Mourinho taking the job in mid-season... With the nick that this squad is in, I think that's where your your percentage chance diminishes. I think that when he's offered the job, he will say that I will take it in summer only. And at that point, he's putting himself up against candidates because I, th I think there are candidates. I'm not certain that Allegri will stay at Juventus at the end of the season. Joachim Lowe has said that he's ready for club football. Joachim Lowe has been an attractive proposition to Florentino Perez in the past. Pochettino is somebody that there is now a queue for and I saw in recent hints that while he's saying he wants to stay forever and a day at Spurs he's also saying quite difficult to win trophies without spending a bit more money so he's on he's at least a subject for discussion although it'll be difficult to get clear Ger Mourinho taking over mid-season with the nick that this squad is in I would be surprised it would be very interesting, though, even if it isn't now, but even at the end of the season, if Jose Mourinho does take over, and you would suspect that Perez would give him the backing, he would allow Jose Mourinho to do the things in the transfer window that Ed Woodward did not allow him to do at Manchester United. And it would be very intriguing to see then how the game management and the attitude of Jose Mourinho would then change. You talk about being aggressive and going on the front foot a little bit more. Could it prove that Jose Mourinho's tenure at Manchester United, particularly for the duration of this season, was just one big sulk because he didn't get what he wanted from the board? Wow. Um, if, if you want my honest opinion, having watched him, having um, spoken to people who've worked for him at well, each of his last four clubs... My opinion is no. I, I think that he has lost something material. I think that he is the equivalent of Lukaku, but in managerial terms. I think that Jose Mourinho needs a professor. Um, uh, something, somebody who is beyond the influence George Mendes has, him, has on him in terms of here's your next financial move. Here's the way that you can play this politically. I think Jose Mourinho's coaching manual, people use the phrase out of date, that everybody else has moved on and he hasn't. I think that's a really poor way of describing what's gone on. I think he's lost his way individually. I think that his coaching ideas are, are probably as relevant and potentially when well applied with a squad fully behind him. I think he's potentially as, as damaging to other clubs and other teams as he once was. It's him who's changed. It's him who's lost his way. 
and and the one long sulk idea i think is 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 a good micro assessment of what's happened over the last few months um but in my opinion the traces of what we saw at manchester united were fully available in his last year at real madrid were fully available for parts of his tenure at chelsea and therefore i think that there's there's more wrong on than than the than his uh, petulance that he wasn't allowed to get the specific players that he asked for. Because I, I think it's legitimate, although Ed Woodward is no technical director, he's no director of football and, and needs to be moved aside. I think we can say that he did back him financially. It was a fallout over specifics that caused the rift. I think it's Mourinho who has the individual problem and it's Mourinho who needs to change, not just his club situation or his relationship with a director of football. Real Madrid are up against uh, Ajax in the round of 16 in the Champions League. Um, this is still a competition that this team and this collection of players could win. We've seen them have bad seasons and win Champions Leagues in the past. Would that be the potential thing that might be able to tempt Mourinho to stand at the end of the season alone on the pitch, holding the trophy, going, yeah, I did this? It's a really good question. It's a fair point. Um, first of all, I back your assessment that um, were it to be the case that they could drop Marcelo, play Reguillon, um, get Nacho fully fit um, so that it wasn't Varane and Ramos every single game, get Marcos Llorente anchoring the midfield, possibly once Casemiro is match fit, playing the two of them together. If Vinicius has got a little spark of life in him that he showed the other day in defeat at home to La Real, then your argument is sound, and yeah, there's a there's a pattern whereby it doesn't need Real Madrid to be fully firing domestically in order to win the Champions League. And yeah, I take your point that if he did a SWOT analysis on Real Madrid and felt that uh, Pintus, the fitness coach, was bringing this squad to the boil, um, there were some signs of that before Christmas. They won pretty handsomely um, in the World Club Championship, albeit against opposition that would have been bottom of the table, you know, bottom third of the table in La Liga. I, I think that you've made an argument there. Yes, it is a sprint now to the Champions League. Ajax, although they are playing much better football, are a much more mature side. And although Wesley Schneider, ex-Ajax, ex-Real Madrid, did a very big piece here over the holiday season saying if Real Madrid think they're going to pick Ajax off the way that Manchester United did in the Europa League, then they've misjudged them. This is a changed side. And I think that's a decent argument. And... Besides that, for example, when you watch the way in which Levante and Abar beat uh, Real Madrid, to say that Ajax knocking them out of the Champions League is impossible would be utterly foolhardy. But yeah, I see your low-hanging fruit argument. I see how that could attract Jose Mourinho. I take that point. One one last thing we did want to talk to you about this week, Graham, was um, the legacy of Seth Fabregas, obviously uh, an, an emotional goodbye from him in uh, the last game that he'll play probably in English football. And I know obviously at that time that he had at Barcelona has come to be considered something of a failure around the rest of the world, um, given how amazing there was a short period there where it looked like he was going to reach the full flower of his potential. And yet, at the same time, it's a guy who's won two European uh, championships, uh, a World Cup, uh, two league titles with Chelsea, a bunch of FA Cups, was club captain at Arsenal at 18. Like, it's been an amazing career. Yeah, I think as well a, a, a remarkable footballer. I think there were spells when Cesc Fabregas played a brand of football 
which was iconic in the way that Europe began to reevaluate the use of the ball, position of football, uh, short passing in triangles in order to drag opponents about, and he become he'll stay iconic for that. I think that one of the things that he had as well was a toughness. He's a really tough guy, tough on the pitch, tough off the pitch. And therefore, he was able to handle the transition to Premier League football, which at that stage, not every Spaniard was finding himself capable of doing. Where I think um, it's, it might, if you're asking if, if it's fair that some of his legacy is a little bit tarnished, like Sergio Busquets, he needed more speed athletically. If he had been blessed with a little bit more athletic speed, then he, his durability to impose the things that he does really well would have lasted longer at a higher level, in my opinion. I I, um, I also remember his character. We, I'm not sure if you listed that in his garlands, but I spoke to him and I spoke to Vincente Del Bosque a lot during the 2010 World Cup when Cesc was dropped and out. And he's a sulky guy. That's what, another thing that those who worked around, you get either all sunshine or it's dark clouds and, you know, a grim face from Cesc Fabregas around the training ground. And he was like that. Vincente Del Bosque said to me in an interview, well, in a chat in a corridor in one of the stadiums in the World Cup, ah, Cesc is pissed off with me and he's quite right to be too because at his club he'd be an automatic cho- choice. My next interview with Cesc, I said to him, what do you, what do you, how do you cope with this? I'll be ready. My job is to be ready. I'll be ready. Brought off the bench in the World Cup final. He is ready. He nicks on to the loose ball as I think um, Van der Vaart falls over in the penalty area, slots it to Iniesta. Goal. I think that's a really decent, iconic moment in anybody's career, no? Yeah. We, we were talking about tiers of midfielders in Premier League history and obviously short Premier League. So uh, there's Keane, there's Vieira, there's Scholes, then there's a secondary tier which has Lampard and Gerrard. And then just below that, there's Sesk. Is that right? Yeah, it's well for a barroom discussion, for off the ball discussion. Yeah, I don't know if Steven Gerrard and Lampard are saying, oh, "I wish I was on that next tier." When they look at their bank balances, when they look at the way the club fans feel about, when they look at their medals, I'd also like to throw in there Manu Petit, um, who, for my money, for maybe a shorter time than you're talking about, was utterly extraordinary. There will be others. Is it does Sesk's impact on the game match those that you've listed? No, it probably doesn't. And I would also say that part of that comes down to his ability to to be fleet of foot and, and, and move away from tackles rather than pass away from tackles. It's a small component. It has afflicted Sergio Busquets. And the brain and the foot and the, and the, the sort of geometric, the, the vision about angles, all those things were there. But other players that you've mentioned had different things, I do agree. But he's he's one of the most British of the Spaniards, says Fabregas, in my opinion. One um, one last um, point about that. When Am I right in saying he was the first proper false nine in the Guardiola era? Because there was a season where, before Christmas, he had banged in 10, 12, 14 goals and then didn't score for the rest of the year. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the way in which Guardiola um, stole the concept of a false nine, which obviously has roots in Hungarian football, and effectively Guardiola played with one, with Michael Laudrup, who is not a centre-forward, played as a false nine in that dream team on occasions when Romario didn't start or whatever, or Salinas. But Messi was the first reinvention of that concept for Pep Guardiola, at least in the 6-2 called him two, three nights before the 6-2 win away at the Bernabeu in his first season. But Fabregas, yes, played that. When Fabregas moved to the midfield at Football Club Barcelona, what happened was 
he was bombarded with the type of information, open university PhD thesis stuff that Pep Guardiola felt because Cesc could um, apply them on the pitch that he would understand instantly. But because Fabregas had spent so long in English football with utterly different requirements placed on him, he actually admitted that he was confused and that to compute all the information about position, about when to pass, about how to how many passes Guardiola wanted, how to drag opponents up, um, about. Cesc took a long time to compute that, looked a little bit lost in the pitch, and then came out and said, I'm struggling to compute all of this. At which point, yes, he did get used in that role, and that helped the Spain national team endlessly, because at the end of Pep's final season in 2012, Del used Fabregas as a false nine in the European Championships, not every time against Ireland, of course, I bet you wish that he had because Fernando Torres started and did yeah. quite well in uh, Dansk. Sorry about the mention. And and Fabregas, therefore, that his club form and what he was asked to do by Guardiola was a direct spur to Spain winning 2012. Graham, great stuff as ever. Thanks a million. Lad. It's uh, Graham Hunter giving us some thoughts on Cesc. The thing is, Cesc Fabregas is not retired from football. Well, he has gone to Monaco, you know. <laughs> Who knows? Monaco it's could... The new, uh, it's the new Major League Soccer. Monaco or Ligon? Uh, I mean, Monaco, really. Like, you can't really say Ligon is, is the, the MLS because it's not, it's not really a retirement home as a league. And like, we'll see what Monaco do next season. Give Henri a, a full year <laughs> in charge. Give me a hot take. I, can, I, can, I can't even that, say that without laughing. Give me a hostage to fortune right now that we will uh, print on your tombstone. Uh, give me a... a, a yeah, you know, Monaco are going to do something, something, something under Thierry. Well, I, to be honest, I didn't even get through that sentence without laughing. Thierry Henry, if he's Monaco manager this time next year, will be doing well. Wouldn't yeah. It? yeah, I don't think, and maybe I'm too harsh here. I don't think he's cut out for management. Maybe, maybe he would have been a, a good person in the, the Martinez camp, but like we had Christoph Terreur on the show before the World Cup last year, and he was like, Henri is the first person at the training ground, the first person to leave, or sorry, the last person at the training ground, and the first person to leave. Um, it kind of isn't as tuned into it as, say, Roberto Martinez is, for example, or other yeah. young managers are. Um, Graham obviously made the Barcelona documentary. Thierry Henry is one of the stars of it, and he's brilliant. His analysis of, of the goals and stuff, and but his uh, his understanding of everything and his ability to communicate that is is excellent in his second language. So it'll be interesting to see if he is a failure as a manager. I like maybe the Villa job or one of those lower tier English football jobs where you get in, you fail at that, and then you get a Monaco job, and you're like, okay, I've, I've made my mistakes now. I understand what I'm supposed to do, as opposed to going straight in at Monaco. Would have been the like there is. This- there is every chance that no matter who the manager was there, like anybody on the up would have been struggling just like Thierry is. Um, whatever about Wesley Snyder saying that this Ajax team won't roll over for Real Madrid, we saw Ajax play against Benfica and they're grand. Yeah. Like, like they're grand. They're Real Madrid got a great draw. Yeah. They're a bunch of kids. That Ajax team is going to be a collection of individuals that we look back at and say, wow, what a team. But it, It's a real pity they couldn't keep them all together as they go on and do great things for other teams. Like every Ajax team ever in the last 30 years. Yeah. So, like, yeah, it's a fantastic draw for Real Madrid. It's a good shout, actually, that they go on to win the, the Champions League. I think Perez picks up the phone to Jose Mourinho now and says, you know, who do you want? Do you want two centre-backs, a striker? I, like, to be honest, that's a Manchester United solution. Uh, whatever you want, I'll give it to you right now. And uh, let's go and have a crack at this thing. Although how, the thing is, when he makes signings for the Champions League, they might not be able to play. How are you pronouncing the Spurs manager? Pochettino. Uh, review loop on our YouTube comments. There's a dark hole. Says, uh, stop mit- mispronouncing Pochettino. Okay, thanks. It's an Italian surname, not Spanish, you illiterate ginger hacks. Oh, that's a shame, isn't it? I am illiterate. 
I am ginger as well, so uh, he is he is accurate on that. What's uh, what's wrong with Pochettino? Uh, His first I mean, name maybe Maurizio. Maurizio. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure. You Luke can uh, maybe the CH is his a channel. K. So it should be Pochettino, Pochettino. But I've never heard anybody call it that. I have, and I assumed it was wrong. Who? Maybe it was Review Loop that I was watching. Maybe, uh, I, I have heard people say, say Pochettino, but I just assumed it was wrong. You can WhatsApp us, but we never give the number out. Why is that? I don't know why, why that is. Why do we never give the number out, Tommy? Tommy's down in his own wormhole. Why do we never give the WhatsApp number out? He says, I don't know. I don't know. But so if we, we, we have a WhatsApp number, we'll stick it in our Twitter byline. And you can uh, record the sound for... Actually, record us a video of you, Mr. Review Loop, saying... Yeah. Maurizio Pochettino. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure that's definitely going to happen. Uh, delightful young person there. Or old person. I don't know what age, what age that person is. Uh, do you want to know who the world's most valuable player is? Yeah, 10 to 1, the world's most valuable player. Who do you think? Oh, g- give me, have you seen the headlines already? No, no, I haven't seen any of this. Right, so... Uh, What's the criteria? So basically, the, the International Centre for Sports Studies, which is the CIES, the FIFA-backed organisation, they, they've done this for like the last five, six years, where they assess footballers' market values. They have an algorithm based on uh, form, transfer history, duration of contract, marketability, nationality and country of employment. So this is according to the Irish Examiner, that this is what uh, the criteria are. So, Let, okay, okay, so like, am, I, am I buying this player at, yes. at a price? Yes. So it's and am I buying this player and getting one year out of them? Is it right now this moment? No. Basically, what they have, they've come up with a market value. For so Killian, Killian Mbappe is the most valuable player in world football for all sorts of reasons. Because well, we'll we'll see about that. Well, no, like it depends, right? If I if I, if I'm starting, say the Premier League is formed and you have to buy in, and I I am the owner, I'm the billionaire owner of a franchise. The first player on my team sheet. Is Kylian Mbappe? Okay. Not any, not Neymar, not Ronaldo, not Messi at this point, because I know that I will have him for eight to ten years for the peak years of his career, and so that would be my criteria, which is possibly a bit different. Well, so you think Mbappe is number one on this list? If, if I want to sell shirts, the first player on my list is Cristiano Ronaldo. Okay. If I want to win this year, the first player on my team is Leo Messi, and then potentially after that. Okay, so you're, you're going Mbappe number one. Where do you think Ronaldo and Messi are before I reveal the list? Well, it depends. My, my criteria changed there. Okay, so who do you think has got the highest market value? Uh, I mean, probably Ronaldo, disgustingly. Right, okay. So Ronaldo's your number one, really, not Mbappe. No, I mean... Would I just go through the list and uh, uh, allow you to think about it? Th- think about it while I'm going through the list. So number ten, who's number, uh, number ten? Number ten is Leroy Sané uh, at a market value of 156.1 million euro. Okay, so this is just the transfer fee today to buy him. Well, you see, there's no such thing as a transfer fee. Like Manchester City probably have a private value on Leroy Sané, but we don't know. It's not like you go into a football manager and say, "Oh, that person has a transfer fee." Yeah, buyout. transfer fees don't exist until you actually pay the fee and have the negotiation. Well, there's so, a buyout clause for a lot of these guys. Well, the buyout clause is not included here. This is the actual value. Some people are undervalued by their by their buyout clause. Some people are overvalued by their buyout clause. So, okay. Can we just can we just <laughs> like, get with the program here? This is all hypothetical. No, you're ruining this before I've even started it. Uh, number nine is Philippe Coutinho, 157 million euro. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, that there was the ninth most coverable player in the world. There was some suggestion yesterday that Philippe Coutinho could be going to Manchester United, or that Manchester United are going to sign him. I would love to see how Liverpool fans react to that. At number eight, Romelu Lukaku, 
162 million euro is what uh, this FIFA-backed organisation are putting him as when it comes to his market value. On a point of information, I think that Romelu Lukaku is included in the top ten, ruins the entire. By, he is he has he is the virus that has made this whole thing explode. I'm sorry, he's the botulism in the middle of this nice pile of scrambled eggs. Well. You know what, there's, there's statistics against you and I don't really care about your opinion anymore on this. Uh, number seven is Lionel Messi, 171.2 million. No! It's number seven! Number seven, yeah. This list is bullshit. It's not bullshit. You okay. can't be number seven. It's Lionel Messi. He's not number seven in any list in the world ever. When it comes to football, this is about <laughs> transfer value. The guy's old. The guy's old. Number six is Paolo Dybala. 171.9 million euros, so just about ahead of his... Uh, Messi's 31. He's not old. He can play at this level to 35 or 36. Well, we, we'll, see, we'll see where uh, your other two suggestions are in Ronaldo and Mbappe. Uh, number five is Mo Salah, 184.3 million euro. Number four is an interesting one. It's Raheem Sterling, 185.8 million euro. Uh, Neymar is number three, 197.1 million euro. And then one and two are both valued at over 200 million euro. Number two is Harry Kane. So either Ronaldo or Mbappe is not making this top ten. Ronaldo's not making the top ten. Number one is Kylian Mbappe. 218.5 million euro uh, according to CIES the world's MVP he is yeah I get that I, I, I get that too I, I think that's fair I think Harry uh, Kane is number two Harry Kane is number two I guess there's multiple factors the fact that you're p- playing in the Premier League the exposure to massive television audiences the age the talent and I guess the fact that you are a forward as well yeah, I mean, his um, continual ability to score goals when it looks like he's had a drought and then he's just, like, and he scores every type of goal. He scores tap-ins, he scores, like, the goal the other night. I'm like, just mark Harry Kane, he's not going to score from there. Oh, wait, he's just, he's just scored from, like, 30 yards. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's, what, it's what he tends to do. That was against Tranmere, though. No, no. This was oh, you the mean other. the other one against Wolves? Yeah. Well, the one that they lost. Uh, you mean the one since then. Harry Kane's had a good couple of weeks. He's had a good couple of weeks. And uh, coming second to this list is just uh, further this. Leo Messi so, cannot be number seven on this list. Well, he can be. Yeah, but the list is bullshit then. How much is it going to cost you right now to buy Leo Messi? Is, okay. Is that, that's no, the no, 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 no. That's what they're saying? Yeah. Market value. So you, you, to actually get him, you'll probably have to go well above market value because it's Lionel Messi. Because it's the greatest footballer of all time. Well, then the value that the market places on him is higher than the market value. That's the whole point about market value. This is like a made-up market value, and the actual market value will be way more. Do you have, do you have any qualifications in economics? <laughs> no. Well, there's a reason why that is. <laughs> okay, well, that was, a, that was a great segment. That's it. That, that, well, well done. That's me, that's me done. I'm not, I'm not uh, complying with anything else ever. <laughs> you can defend it there. So they've been assessing um, footballers' market values for the past five years using an algorithm based on a range of factors, form, transfer history, duration of contract, marketability, nationality, and country of employment. Yeah, so, I literally said that earlier. Racial profiling uh, and a bunch of other stuff. It's not racial profiling, really. It's country of employment. Um, oh, sorry, nationality's there. Yeah. Yeah, that is racial profiling. Okay, so if you want to send us a voice note, you can, uh, you can send it to 083... 083- one one two eight one five four. That's country code plus three five three. Obviously, oh uh, eight three eleven twenty eight one five four. Send us whatever you want, and we'll publish it all. It'll go straight online. There will be no filter. Just send us whatever you want, and we will straight up. No one ever slides into our DMs. Speak for yourself, Jer. <laughs> I mean the I mean the off the ball one. Oh, sorry. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> there we go. I've, uh, the mask has slipped. Yeah. What do you get? Um. Well, yeah, nobody, nobody's ever slid into my DMs, which is, uh, I'm not sure is that sad or is it something I should be appreciative of. 
Uh, yeah, okay. So Man United have announced that um, they uh, are going to launch the first Manchester United Entertainment and Experience Centre. Where do you think it's going to be? Manchester. What, what part of the world is it going to be? The Manchester United Entertainment and Experience Centre. Three of them at um, the same time. Los Angeles. Three of them at the same time in the same country. Well, the United States. Beijing, Shanghai and Shenyang by the end of 2020. Wow. That's mad. Like... I'm surprised that the Chinese government hasn't actually just put a stop to that immediately. If they really want to win the World Cup some year, it's just they've created a trying to create their own sort of organic footballing culture, and it just seems that they're more and more capable of being penetrated by Premier League teams. Well, we could uh, have a look at the promo video that they've released here as well. Have a look at this. Not just focus on history, tell respect the tradition, and tell the future generation how to become great. There's a, a number of things that having an entertainment centre will offer. The first is a place to go and have that shared experience. So much about supporting Manchester United is that togetherness, the togetherness of the fans, togetherness of the team, and having a location where everyone goes is really important. I think that the technology and what that offers and operates in terms of providing a really engaging sense of what it's like to be at Old Trafford or at the game or on the pitch... Um, is going to be really interesting. And then finally, the chance to do things as a family that you'd normally do, whether that's eat, shop, or just spend time together, I think is going to be really exciting. Or spend money. If you, if you as a family want to spend money, spend it with us. I wonder if they do match day experiences, because that's actually something that sounds like a fairly functional thing. Uh, go and watch a match together. As in, like, United are in the, the half-12 kickoff, half-eight on a Saturday night, go down to your local Manchester United Experience Centre and go... Yeah. support your team with people thousands and thousands of miles away yeah well you know look I mean it's a it's a war out there you've got to win in every possible way you can you've got to win China uh, Chelsea have just won the um, American vote with the Pulisic the World Cup's going to be in Pat never made this point last night the World Cup's going to be in America just as Pulisic rises to that point of global superstardom Chelsea will already own him at that point and that, uh, then the £60 million they're spending on him will look like a bargain. Unless Chelsea do to Pulisic what they've done to every other Chelsea kid ever. And he goes out on loan to Bournemouth and becomes... I, I don't know what he becomes. But like he, there is every chance that, that the transfer doesn't look as smart in, in a year's time as it does now. Um, it, well, it's, it's very much a TBC. Like it, it, the, there's been a lot of takes either side of this. People saying it's great value and there's been tons of Chelsea fans uh, if you look at even the, the social media around the day that he was signed, that are saying that this is a, a big overpayment on a player who perhaps is a tad overrated. I don't believe that myself. I think he's got huge potential. If I've got huge potential, am I going to Chelsea, though, is the question. And I, I'm I, not so sure. But why did Chelsea buy him? Well, there, there is a commercial aspect to that. 100%. Sure. You no, know, you're, you're right. Like, you know, and if some manager gets the best out of him, great. And if some manager doesn't get the best out of him, he will play in all those friendlies that we, we play uh, when we go over there as Chelsea next season and the year after and the year after or if he goes out and loan for a year and then comes back just in time for the World Cup the question like, is who's going to win the Middle East uh, Wayne Rooney I think has already won the Middle East with his trip to Saudi Arabia I see Arsene Wenger this morning has been linked with the Qatar job which has now become the most talked about job in modern football the Qatar job who is it going to be is it going to be Jose Mourinho is it going to be Arsene Wenger probably be Carlos Quirosh uh, Danny B says, let's be real, Tyke Furlong is a once-in-a-generation tight head. I place him above Sexton and Toner on the list of people we can't afford to get injured for the World Cup. Sexton and Toner, that's an interesting list. Um, yeah. The gap is closing a little bit from Furlong to Andrew Porter, but 
Uh, Tyke Furlong is the best player in the world in his position, and you know Johnny Sexton obviously the best player in the world in his position at the moment. But like Sexton and Bowden Barrett, yeah, pretty close. Uh, Tyke Furlong and the next tight head, big gap. Yeah, there's no argument about that. There is an argument about Sexton versus versus Barrett. Uh, those Premiership midfield tiers still adhere to the notion that picking great Premiership teams seems to stop in the early 2000s. Lampard and Gerrard are in that tier if Skulls is. I mean, maybe they are. I'm not sure. Stops in the early 2000s as in no one in the last 10 years can get in. Yeah. Well, I guess you've got to wait and see. Like, does Angolo Kante become a, a top-tier or a second-tier midfielder in a few years' time with a couple of more Premier League medals, potentially? Yeah, yeah totally. I mean, I think he's probably already in that uh, Lampard and Gerrard tier. Probably tier three. I mean, he's won a World Cup. There is that, but we are talking about Premier League midfielders. I know, but he was the best player in that team that won the World Cup. I mean, obviously, Kylian Mbappe was like the most explosive player, but... Most effective player. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he probably. Pro- I, I still think Ogman he's not even getting a mention. Like I do think that all Angola Kante has to do is show up for the, the next five years in the Premier League and get to that level. But uh, right now, you have to say he hasn't done what Lampard and Gerrard. Okay, <laughs> I've just absolutely contradicted myself. Premier League uh, performances only, and I put Gerrard above Angola Kante when Kante has two more titles than Gerrard. Uh, but I, I still think it's just an, another couple of years before he reaches that level of, of greatness and, and just being a Premier League icon. Yeah, uh, I think that it'll probably happen. I think that it's probably already there. I think in terms the of skill set. Yeah, the impact of Tennessee. Did you say Fernandinho? Tommy's saying Fernandinho. He says it's being tongue in cheek, but, you know, all he needs to do is get injured again. Uh, he's going to be the greatest player of all time. Kevin De Bruyne has to be on that path as well. Uh, because let's, let's not judge this in the last three months. Is De Bruyne like a proper out and out midfielder? Well, I suppose you wouldn't consider David Silva on that list, and essentially he's been playing the same position as David Silva when they've both been playing together for the last 12, 18 months. So I guess no, technically. Include David Silva more likely on that list. Than De Bruyne? Uh, He's a little bit further back, doesn't he? De Bruyne's a forward. Like, whatever part of the pitch he plays in. He's an advanced eight, just like David Silva. Uh, All right. Good stuff today. No, good stuff yourself. You rescued it with the uh, 10 most expensive, most valuable players ever. <laughs> by putting, I can't believe you put Leo Messi. I can't believe you didn't pick Leo Messi. We, we had to throw out Owen's FIFA team when he didn't pick Leo Messi in it. I still, now, get, I still keep getting likes on that tweet. <laughs> <laughs> I got one the other day. Some guy liking his own, some probably seven-year-old liking his own tweet, saying that I'm an absolute wanker or something for not putting Lionel Messi into the team. He's right, you are. And now you put a number seven on your list. Uh, well, like what, if you're why picking, do you hate Lionel Messi? If you're picking a front three here, Lionel Messi doesn't even make the bench. So you've got Mbappe, Kane and Neymar up front and then uh, Sterling, Salah and Dybala coming off the bench. Three subs done, Lionel Messi, you're not going to get him today, son. Coming up tonight on the radio on News Talk and Off the Ball, Park Harrington will talk about the captaincy of the European team for the 2020 Ryder Cup, the life and death of boxer Tommy Morrison, better known as Tommy Gunn in Rocky Five. And Dan McDonald is going to be in studio, and uh, we will uh, also see you tomorrow morning at 7.45 a.m. If you've got any questions for us, you can always just use the hashtag OTBM. We'll pick up all the tweets a little bit later on. We, we see all the comments that you leave on our live stream on YouTube, on Facebook.com forward slash off the ball, where I hope you're all subscribers, and uh, likewise on YouTube.com forward slash off the ball. Good luck, see you. So, if you like this, you'll probably also like OTB AM, Ireland's only sports breakfast show. Subscribe to the OTB AM podcast stream or catch the show live on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook or offtheball.com every morning from 7.45 a.m.